0: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when
1: starting shift work. Hi, my name is Olivia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in the team and solve conflict.
0: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
0: Hello, my name is Liz Crow,
2: and I'm Jesse Spur.
0: Welcome to another episode of Five Things Nursing, and today we're going to talk all things fluids and electrolytes with the lovely Rebecca Rashley Rolls, who's the ICU nurse educator here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, back. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me.
2: You certainly win the best name for alliteration that we've ever had on the podcast. So that's pretty exciting Rebecca stuff. Rebecca
0: Rashley Rolls.
1: I do, don't I? R cubed. Yes. Oh,
2: nice, nice. So, Beck, we'd love to hear your origin story and how you ended up in this space as an intensive care nurse educator.
1: Sure. Uh, so, I started nursing 20 years ago this year. Uh, I originally started in med so I did my graduate year there. I um, stayed on the ward for about a year and uh, one day I had to transfer a, a patient down to ICU. And when I went down, I sort of had a bit of a look around and went, I really think I want to give this a go. So I um, applied to work in the ICU, had an interview, got a job, did my transition, did my specialty, went to the Alfred for a while, came back and sort of uh, fell into education through doing clinical facilitation and a real passion for learning and having nurses really critically think and link in physiology to what we're doing. And uh, the opportunity came up for me to relieve in the educator role, and I found that really was my place. So uh, I was fortunate enough to interview uh, a few years later, and um, I've been a nurse educator from about 2016. Yeah, perfect.
2: So had you ever had a uh, clinical placement or anything in ICU, or so that was first time through the doors?
1: Yeah, no, I'd never had a placement, and so I'd heard about ICU and you know, through life maybe just had a little bit of an idea, but it was when I took the patient down uh, following a medical emergency that I really got a first-hand view of what ICU involved and, um, and the environment. And I was quite taken back and I could see that it was a really dynamic area, even in the first few, you know, five minutes that I was there and it just fascinated me and I wanted to give it a go.
0: Okay. Terrific. So we're going to jump straight into this to learn about fluids and electrolytes. And I would like to say over the course of my ICU career, I've picked up a lot of, you know, medical terms and understanding, and I'm very good at diagnosing babies like in my head, but fluids and electrolytes is something that still kind of evades me. So I'm looking forward to this. So your number one point is what I wanted to ask. Why are they so important?
1: Yeah. So... Fluids and electrolytes are fundamental to our bodies working, essentially. So 40% of our total body weight is made up of intracellular fluid. So that's super important. And as I said earlier, I'm really passionate about nurses understanding physiology and putting theory to practice side – don't mind, like to sort of talk a little bit about some physiology relating to cells and how fluid and electrolyte moves. Sounds good.
2: love that. That's one of the benefits about having that one patient focus is you can actually become a bedside physiologist.
1: You can. So basically, um, so that fluid that's sitting in our cells, known as cytosol, sits in uh, the cytoplasm of cells. So if you go back to Bioscience 1, first lecture, I remember picture of a cell up on the um, lecture board. And so first thing you would have seen is a cell with a nucleus and its organelles around. Um, It had this sort of funny outer thing and the fluid sort of all sits in the middle there. So within that fluid, it is highly, highly rich in things like sodium, potassium, chloride, bicarb. And so these things for the sake of today, we're gonna to term as electrolytes. Okay, so electrolytes really are a medium that contains ions. So electrolytes are water soluble, and that's super important because obviously your blood traveling along, going over to a cell, it needs to be able to have been dissolved in water and then passed through. So these electrolytes and fluids come in and out of cells via a gateway which is known as our semi-permeable membrane. So again, remembering back to bioscience, when you had that sort of thick line around the cell, that's our semi-permeable membrane. And that's actually what differentiates us from plants, is that we, we have our semi-permeable membrane. And so what this is, it's a phospholipid bilayer. So it's just a fancy way of saying it's a, a membrane membrane, Part of it likes water, part of it doesn't like water. And so what happens is this membrane is really selective. Some things can just pass through it. So if you think of it like a fence, right, and there's some gaps between the slats in the fence, if something is small enough, it might be able to pass through that. Okay. And that's known as simple diffusion. So it can just sort of through because it's small enough to get through there. However, most of the things that come through a cell, they need a little bit of help and they get a bit of help through these proteins that sit on this membrane and they act as like a, a lockbox. And if the right key comes along, that lockbox opens and whatever it is that has that key can come in and out. And that is how most of our electrolytes will move in and out of our cells. And this is called facilitated diffusion. So it's basically where predominantly your ions, fluid, will move from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. Okay, so... We have this process, and again, we're going to get a little bit heavy with the physiology here called osmosis. Yep. Okay. And I'd just like to just say here, my stepsister always laughs at me because she says every time I see her, there is a comment about osmosis. So (laughs) she thinks it's super funny that I'm coming here and I'm going to talk about osmosis. Anyway. So osmosis is really important for your fluids and electrolytes. So you might think, okay, what is osmosis? I've heard the word, but I can't quite remember what it is. So, osmosis relates to the movement of water from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. Okay. And so, how this relates to fluids and electrolytes is the body always wants to maintain homeostasis. So, if you have an area that's really highly concentrated with electrolytes, such as within the cell, and an area outside that is not as concentrated such as like your plasma fluid. The body is going to try and push some of those electrolytes with the water through the slats in those gates of the semi-permeable membrane to kind of even things out. And our body is in a constant state of this, moving this way, moving that way. So essentially your solutes, so the things that are dissolved in there, such as the electrolytes, move with water. So whether that's in the tissues in your cells... ...or whether it's back into the blood. Are you with me?
0: Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. Keep going.
1: Okay. So this is really important because this has an effect on what happens... ...when we have
0: too much or too little.
2: Which we've seamlessly moved into point number two.
0: Okay. Okay. Because that was so beautifully described... Can you summarise that in just a couple of lines? So why are fluids and electrolytes so important to the body?
1: So they're so important because we are largely made up of fluid and our electrolytes are so important because they are essential for our cells to survive. Without adequate electrolytes, our cells die and it needs to be at the right levels, which is why we need to have this constant exchange. So it's like Goldilocks's porridge, just right.
0: Yep, perfect. So, your number two point is what happens when there is too much or too little of either fluids or electrolytes? Is that correct? That is correct.
1: So, if we have too little, let's start with that. And I'm largely going to focus on fluid at the moment because these are two different topics. However, they do interconnect, okay? Because as I said, electrolytes follow fluid. So, If we don't have enough, particularly with fluid, this is known as hypovolemia, okay? Now, we can become hypovolemic, meaning we don't have enough fluid through a number of things. So, this could be things like diarrhea, vomiting. If your patient has drains in situ post-surgery or something like that and it's having a really large output... If you have a patient with an NG tube, that's having a lot of output from the stomach, blood loss, and also um, dysfunction with your anti-diuretic hormone. But we're not going to touch on that today. It's a little bit too complicated. Um, So if these things happen and you've got this loss of fluid, okay, so you're hypovolemic, it does a number of things. Most crucially, it's going to decrease your cardiac output in a patient and this is fundamental because our bodies need to maintain cardiac output in order to carry blood, oxygen, remove CO2 and our electrolytes to our cells. So if this happens, what do you actually see? So some things that you will see at a molecular level are things like acid-base disturbance, Um, you'll also see, obviously, those electrolyte imbalances. So if you've got someone who's having a huge NG output, everything that should be being absorbed doesn't get absorbed and you have this huge shift of fluid, you're going to find that patient's electrolytes are likely going to be off. So you get an electrolyte imbalance. Um, Other things that can happen are, are much more serious. So if you have significant loss... Of your electrolytes and your fluids, this can actually lead to circulatory failure and it can lead to cardiac arrest. So it's so important that we keep on top of our electrolytes and fluid balance in order to ensure that we don't end up um, further down the track in a pretty tricky situation. Now, too much is also not good. So if you have too much, you think about if you have too much fluid, if your patient is overloaded. What does this mean? Well, it usually means that fluid moves into the tissues too much. Mm. And then we end up having complications because there's fluid where it shouldn't be. And so sometimes this can result in things such as fluid ending up in our lungs. And this can cause respiratory failure. We can also have, again, electrolyte imbalances because they're in places they shouldn't be. Remember, we have that gate there. We have the fence to kind of keep everything where it should be. But when there's too much or too little, they go to the wrong places. Um, and again, if we have too much, it's going to cause issues with our cardiac function, and it can put a lot of pressure on the heart as well. So particularly for someone who might have um, a cardiac history, if they're having their heart's having to pump really hard against a large resistance due to too much fluid, that is a bad thing as well. So it is super important that we keep them where they
0: should be. Okay, here's a dumb question probably. So obviously this is why fluids and electrolytes are often an important part of a resuscitation, I'm imagining. Is that only the case when you've got too little? Like would you only use fluids and electrolytes when it's too little or because you can be fluid overloaded but still – lacking electrolytes, lacking what you actually need, that you could still have like some resuscitation with fluids, even when on someone who has too much?
1: Yeah. So uh, another thing with fluid is that sometimes it doesn't stay in the intravascular space. So although your patient may be largely fluid overloaded, so what I mean by that is they've got really swollen extremities um, and you can see edema. They're actually intravascularly dry. So that cellular water is in the tissues. It's not where it should be in the circulating blood volume. So that's an example of when you would need to actually give them fluid. And what you would do, and this is a topic for another day, but you would largely probably have to give them a fluid that has a higher protein content such as albumin to Mm. keep that fluid In the vessel. In where it needs to be. So definitely there are times when someone can appear to be overloaded and they're edematous. But we kind of have to balance that Mm. with making sure they're intravascularly filled as well. And look, sometimes even though, you know, we may have too much fluid, remembering solutes go electrolytes go sometimes where fluid goes yeah so your levels could be askew because it's in the wrong place Mm.
2: so i think that all comes back to thinking about hypovolemia and then you've got so it's worth probably defining this you've got absolute hypovolemia where there's loss everything else is maintained the blood vessels aren't dilated um there's not third spacing there's not that leakiness of the fluid going into other tissues mm. there's just has been a gross fluid loss from your circulation then you've got that complex one that you're talking about which is relative hypovolemia where there's there's the right or normal amount of fluid but the blood vessels have dilated so it's actually that's a middle one and then you've got this mixed hypovolemia where you've got actually too much fluid potentially but it's actually moved out of the blood vessels into other spaces so there's different types of hypovolemia but when we talk about hypovolemia it means there's not enough fluid in the vascular spaces
0: and that's what that's going to affect that's going to affect cardiac health everyone write that down yes
2: which is why as a single point in time to assess someone's fluid status it's very 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 hard
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And look, disease process affects that as well. So what Jesse was talking about in relation to, you know, hypovolemia being at different points, things like sepsis or if you have a patient who's really burnt, those sorts of things are going to influence where fluid goes based on the disease process.
0: All right. So let's – your next point is let's talk about the two big ones when it comes to fluids and electrolytes the first is sodium and the second is potassium. Why?
1: Yes. So these particular things are electrolytes and I wanted to talk about them because they can have quite a dramatic effect and they're usually the things that you'll be monitoring most closely in your patients. But remembering. Guys, there are a heap of electrolytes out there. There's no way we could cover all of them today.
2: And everyone that works in ICU has their favourite. They do. <laughs> and they're all different.
1: Yes, yeah, so mine's actually calcium. But anyway.
0: Oh, I'm
2: a calcium fan. Yeah, it's
1: very important. That's a whole I other podcast. I don't have a favourite
0: electrolyte.
2: <laughs> and phosphate. Phosphate's the forgotten one that can yes. really mess things up.
1: Yes. Very exciting. Again, another 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 podcast. day. Mm. Another day. Back in your box,
0: Jesse. All right, let's go back. We're going to talk about the two big ones, which are sodium and potassium. Yeah. So firstly,
1: sodium. So a normal sodium is 135 to 145 millimoles per litre. And it plays an integral role in our bodies in relation to nerve conduction, uh, muscle tissue, intravascular volume, um, readings on your ECG acid-base balance, and other electrolytes. So other electrolytes, particularly potassium, are influenced by sodium. So sodium is regulated in our bodies via the hormone aldosterone, okay? And that is secreted by the adrenal cortex in our kidneys. And what happens is The kidneys will decide whether they reabsorb sodium to keep sodium in the body or excrete it out in our urine. So it's really important to have an understanding of how it's metabolized and excreted in our bodies. So, what can cause a low level of sodium and what can cause a high level of sodium? So, let's start with a low level. This is known as hypo natremia. So basically means that it's too much water. Okay, we're dilutional. And things that can affect that are renal failure. So for instance, when I was talking just before about how aldosterone regulates our sodium, and that's done in the kidneys, obviously if your patient's kidneys are not functioning properly, we could have a bit of an issue there. Um, Chronic heart failure and liver failure can also influence this, okay? We can also end up with a lower sodium due to in excess of water. And what I mean by this is if someone has diarrhea, vomiting, um, large nasogastric aspirates, as Jesse said before, third spacing where you've got that abnormal movement of fluid, the sodium's going to follow. So there are lots of reasons we can have a lower sodium. What you will see in your patients, so the things you want to look out for are things like muscle cramps and weakness, headache, nausea, confusion, and at the later stage, seizure, respiratory depression, and coma. Now, if we have too much, this is also an issue, and this is known as hypernatremia. So, largely dehydration can cause this, okay? So, pure water loss due to sweat, burns, GIT losses. So, again, um, you know, the loss through um, vomiting and becoming dehydrated. I know it, you can be hyponatremic as well, but it's depending on the process and what your fluid balance was kind of doing at the time. Um, you can also cause hypernatremia by excessive sodium intake. And that's where it's really important to know what fluids is my patient on. So most of the time we'll run people on 0.9% sodium chloride. The reason for this is this is what our cellular makeup really is. You know, it's the, it's the proportion that is most replicate of our cytosol. So if you have a patient who is like, Hypernatremic, so they've got too much salt for whatever reason. We really need to think about okay, what fluids have we got going? Do we need to talk to the doctors or a senior member of the nursing team to look at changing that so that we can sort of help maintain an equilibrium? So, the problem with high sodium, your patients will get tachycardic, okay, they're also dehydrated, they'll get tachycardic through that. Um, they'll be thirsty you know their mucous membranes might be a bit dry cool extremities again muscle weakness lethargy confusion seizures and coma later on Mm. now sodium is a little bit more forgiving okay so if you have a level that is like a little bit low of 135 or a bit higher your body tends to be able to cope with that a bit better. It's when you're sort of at those extreme ends, okay? But as nurses, we really need to keep on top of what's going on, what our trends are with this electrolyte to make sure we don't get to that end point. The next electrolyte I'm going to talk about, however, is not so forgiving and it is really important that you keep it in a solid range. So that is potassium. So a normal potassium level is about 3.5 to 4.5 millimoles per liter. It is the chief intracellular cation and it is essential for neurological function, musculoskeletal function, smooth muscle and your heart. So what I mean by intracellular cation it's just it's an ion that has a positive charge, okay? So imbalances in potassium can be life-threatening. And it can be life-threatening quite quickly. Potassium is also regulated in the body via your kidneys. So it's reabsorbed back into the blood and secreted into the urine. Okay, so it's, the kidneys play a vital role for that as well. If you have poor blood flow to your kidneys, that's also going to affect your body's capacity to clear it acid base disturbances, which we won't go into too much, but if you have someone who has an, like a, an acidosis, that actually causes potassium to shift outside of the cell. So there's this exchange that occurs. So it's, it's really important to get onto this really quickly. So we can have what's called hyperkalemia or hypokalemia. So this time I flipped it. So if it's too high, this is called hyperkalemia per kalemia. So it is too high, it is above the 4.5. Now this can be caused by renal failure. So if you have a patient who whose kidneys aren't working properly. Acidosis, if you're giving potassium, blood products, some diuretics that actually don't like that spare potassium. So you have this accumulation effect, trauma and burns, because when you have trauma to your tissues, your body actually throws the potassium out of the cell, okay? So symptoms are things such as lethargy, confusion, muscle weakness, calf pain, but they tend to be subtle and then it's bang and then really you're looking at lethal arrhythmia and cardiac arrest. So it is super important to get on top of this electrolyte. Same goes for um, if it's low and this is known as hypokalemia. So this can be caused by diuretics. So if your patient's having regular frusamide and they're peeing all of their potassium out, again, NG aspirates, vomiting, diarrhea, um, and alkalosis as well. Things again that you're going to see are fatigue, muscle weakness cramps. But again, it would quickly move into cardiac arrhythmia and cardiac arrest. So it is super important to get on top of this. One thing I'd really like to concentrate on just quickly is when you're giving fluids, if you have potassium in those IV fluids, it is so important to make sure you understand your hospital's policy pertaining to the administration of potassium and fluids and and stick to that because if you give it too rapidly at too high a concentration, you're going to run into trouble. And we really need to keep a close eye on these electrolytes by monitoring. We give very high doses in ICU that are not given out on the ward for the sheer reason that it needs very close observation.
0: Yeah, so a patient who needs potassium, lots of lots potassium, of always comes into ICU Pretty on the much. whole, don't they? Yes.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, that's a really important thing to flag as well. If you're, you have a patient that is severely hyponatremic and they're trying to treat it on the ward and you're unable to keep up with it because of the inability to give a stronger potassium concentration that really needs prompt escalation so your tissue your cannulas tissue Mm -hmm. so you can't can't give iv um they can't take anything in um orally so they can't have like dissolvable uh clovescent potassium that's An urgent, urgent thing to escalate because it's not like, oh, we'll just wait till the cannula can get replaced type stuff because you're already behind the eight ball because of the inability to give a a higher concentration potassium. So
0: that should be escalated. And the fastest way to measure sodium and potassium is a blood test?
1: That is correct. Yes. So taking some bloods. Uh, if it is an emergent issue, and let's say your patient is in a Merck call, sometimes uh, the, cu- the team who comes might take what's called a blood gas. And so that is actually coming from the artery a lot of the time, can come from the vein as well. And then we can quickly whip that down to our machine in ICU or emergency and get those levels really quickly. But standardly, it would be in your bloods. Mm. Perfect.
0: All right. Lots of, lots of learnings, lots of things that I think people probably would benefit from going back and having and listening to again. But your number four is around nursing assessment for fluids and electrolytes. How, how do we do it and, you know, what happens next? Lovely. So this is really where it all
1: comes together. So having theory in your head is great, but you need to be able to utilise that theory to be able to assess your patient and get the correct treatment for them. So what I wanted to talk about now is actually how you assess for fluid and electrolyte imbalance and how you implement the nursing process to address this. The nursing process you all would have heard of, it seems quite theoretical, and it's that assess- Plan, implement and evaluate. It is the one structure that really is fundamental for you to come out and nut down. So I always say to my new graduates and my new starters in ICU, if you carry this in your head, assess, find out what's wrong. Get help, plan. What is my plan to deal with this problem? Implement I'm going to do what the plan says and most importantly, evaluate. How am I going to know what I just did worked?
2: And the acronym's API, and I'm actually pretty hungry now and I can't (laughs) stop thinking about a pie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love a pie too. Okay, API. All right, well, that's really an easy one to remember. Yeah,
1: yep. And this can be applied to anything. So, whether it's a topic of cardiovascular or neurological, fluid and electrolyte, this is a great. Process to have in your head. So, what sort of comes with the assessment component? Well, the assessment component, yes, it does involve a systematic assessment. Now, again, the beauty of nurses really understanding physiology means you can pretty much work out most problems because what you will find as your career develops and your knowledge extends, you're not as siloed into cardiovascular, neurofluids, and electrolytes because they're all interlinked. So having a systematic assessment is super important. That's why I'm not suggesting you just check the bloods or you just check for muscle cramps. You need to check the whole system because everything is interrelated. So doing a full head to toe is really important. Other things you need to consider though are the extras. So for instance, what is the patient's past medical history? Is there something, is there some underlying condition that they have that's going to exacerbate their risk of having fluid and electrolyte imbalance, okay? And that could be something as, like we said before, if, if you have a patient that has chronic renal failure, they come in for theatre. Yes, it's chronic, but then they're going to become more unwell and then that could become more of an issue. So it's really important to have that in the back of your mind. The other thing is medication. So what medications is your patient on? you know, have you got a patient who has congestive cardiac failure? And we normally have them on fruizamide because of that condition. But they're here for a different reason now. And now we're losing our potassium. Is that something that needs to be reviewed? So what medications are they on? Can they eat and drink? They can't eat and drink. We really need to make sure that they have some fluids and that they have some fluids that potentially have some electrolytes in them what is their fluid loss, okay, so are they having huge energy outputs, are they suddenly in large volumes, so what's coming out, and that's where it's super important to do your fluid balance and make sure it's accurate, what's going in, what's coming out, where am I sitting, am I neutral, really depleted, or do I have too much. And
2: PUIT isn't an appropriate output to record on a fluid balance chart. No, Patient it is urinated not. in toilet is not actually helpful at all.
1: No, you really do need to make sure you've got um, your volumes down. And yes, it can be tricky. It doesn't have to be to the mill, but um, you at least need to have a good idea of, of, for instance, with their input, what they're drinking.
0: What's coming in, what's coming out.
1: Yep. And we want to maintain that homeostasis. Um, and I did mention before underlying disease process with past medical history, but remember, we're not stagnant, we change. So it could be that now that they're in hospital, there's now a new problem that is now causing this. They may not have had renal failure initially, but let's say something's happened, They've been a big trauma, they've had a hit to their kidneys because of loss of blood flow, then there might be a new underlying disease process that's causing this issue. So this all comes down to critical thinking and this is what makes great nurses. You know, we're not just ticking boxes. We're not just recording observations. We are thinking. We are detectives. We piece the whole thing together. We take that information to people who can give us a plan on what to do. We execute that plan and then we go, okay, is this working? No, it's not. I need to go back to the drawing board. Mm. Okay. And I need to be an advocate for my patient.
0: Terrific. That's, that's so beautifully articulated and it's a lovely way to think about assessment for everything, isn't it? It's about seeing your patient as a whole person and what are the things that you're particularly looking for, but what are the things you must always be looking for? Absolutely. Terrific. All right. Your number five is tools for the toolbox when it comes to fluids and electrolytes.
1: Yes, so this is specifically for fluids and electrolytes, and I think it's really important to have a cognitive toolbox. You know, for those times when you're under pressure, you've got five four patients, you've got so much on your mind, you need to be able to prioritise, and then you've got to think about what is it that I need to look for. This is a nice little mnemonic to kind of give you that.
0: Oh, Jesse loves a mnemonic. <laughs> He's excited.
1: <laughs> so when you think of fluids and electrolytes, think of fluids. So that's
0: the actual mnemonic.
1: So the first one, F, think about their fluid and dietary requirements. So what we mean by this is what diet are they having? Is it sufficient? Do they need more? L stands for loss. So fluid loss. What's the source? What's coming out? And what's happening with their electrolytes? Is there an imbalance associated with this? U, underlying disease? Do we have somebody who has renal failure? Do we have someone who has liver failure? So are there things that are going to contribute? IV specifically relates to IV fluids or I, I should say, sorry. So what fluids are they getting? Is this the correct fluid for them? Is it at the right rate? D for drugs. So What drugs are they on? Are they on drugs that are going to cause issues with fluids and electrolytes, such as diuretics or digoxin? And lastly, S for systems assessment. So going through the whole system to see what actually is going on.
2: I love that because the systems assessment, I think, is a really good way to switch over from like just a generalized surveillance assessment, which we often use more a primary, secondary sort of survey, an ABCD, top to toe, quick and dirty, no immediate life threats, to actually going, I'm going to, this patient's really quite sick. I'm going to flip over into a systems assessment of like CNS, cardiovascular, skin, gut, kidney yeah um and and it really changes the way you think and it also uh, beyond just doing that as an assessment switch i think a documentation framework and it can really help go right sick patient i'm doing a systems-based documentation and highlighting anything that's a concern under each of those systems it makes that a really really useful nursing note
1: yeah absolutely and as you said uh, jesse like a b Dr ABC, so important to know, do I need to get help really quickly? But even if you do need to get help really quickly and you've done that assessment, when the team comes to you, we're going to look to you to give us the information that we need super quickly so that we can get in and do what we need to for the patient.
0: All right. Now I'm going to – this crow is going to chicken out of doing this summary. I've only done this around the cardiac stuff as well. I think you've given a beautiful explanation but I – there's a lot of information there, and I'm, I'm deferring to our expert co facilitator over here to provide a nice, neat summary of what you've told us today. Jesse Spur, take it away. I'll have
2: a crack. It'd be kind of embarrassing if I can't. This, <laughs> point number one is fluids and electrolytes. Why are they important? Really, I think you zoomed that right back into thinking about cytosol, the fluid medium inside a cell. So we're thinking anything that varies in our body that causes fluid and electrolyte shifts to be in places that they're not normally found or a relative depletion or complete depletion of them or too much of them is going to disturb every single cellular function in our entire body. Um, And that will manifest in a lot of ways, but most catastrophically, I guess, worst case endpoint scenario is cardiac arrest and death. So point number two is what happens when there is too little or too much. Well, that was kind of the extension of that practical stuff from the hopefully not too complex um, intro that you did. Uh, And when we talk about hypovolemia, it's not enough fluid in the vascular network. We're not talking about the overall fluid content of the body at that time. It's how much is there adequate amount in the vascular network and where else has it gone? So that was quite useful way of thinking about it. Um, And you started to then segue nicely into focusing on the two big ones. And look, there's so many electrolytes that are so important, but there's two that really regulate and there's dependency on a lot of other electrolyte concentrations on these two. So we zoomed in on sodium and potassium. Too much or too little sodium can largely manifest the same way. Uh, You end up seeing arrhythmias, you see... Uh, particularly uh, neurological effects with sodium. And you can see disturbances in other electrolytes because of concentration gradients with those. Once again, this is the quick and dirty summary. This is one of those episodes that's so worth listening to a couple of times times, through um, or targeted listening to sections of it. The other thing I'd give a big plug is if you're really looking at some great quick summarised info on, say, hyponatremia or hypernatremia, Um, or hypohyperkalemia, lifeinthefastlane.com is an excellent resource for that. No commercial interest, it's free. (laughs) Um, So too much potassium or too little potassium can be catastrophic again. has a much bigger manifestation in cardiac arrhythmia and you don't tend to see the smaller lead-in manifestations clinically of of potassium being deranged. It kind of has a much narrower margin of where our cells like to sit with that. Number four was nursing assessment and a great plug for API: the assess, plan, implement, evaluate. Your assessment being in taking in the underlying history, but then also thinking about what's acute going on here, looking at medications, looking at intake, etc. And that really, I think, to zoom in on that, you did great with our fluids mnemonic. So that really targets in our assessment on a fluids, fluid and electrolyte status. F for fluids is fluid intake, the adequacy of that in diet and availability of it. L is loss, like what are the mechanisms of loss for this patient? Is there a gross loss of fluid that's abnormal volumes? And we'll only know those two things reliably and transferably if we're maintaining a fluid balance chart. U is underlying disease processes and we're thinking about both acute. And chronic with that. So, are they coming in with chronic kidney disease? But then, is there also an acute infection or injury that's maybe causing acute on chronic kidney disease? So, that's a threat amplifier with our fluids and electrolytes. I is IV fluids. Uh, Are there enough? Are they the right ones? Are they the right concentrations? And this is really where we're going as a nurse, if we're particularly with our sickest patients. We need to make sure we know what those blood results are. Is this a patient that hasn't had a set of bloods done for a few days for some reason, it's just slipped through the the net with this sort of thing? D is drugs, Um, those drugs that can kind of have a higher risk of causing fluid and electrolyte dysfunction. And I think that your best way to look at that is the drugs that that either impact kidney function um, intentionally, like diuretics, or that are excreted through the kidneys, um, like digoxin and a whole number of other drugs that that can accumulate and cause problems. And then S comes back to our API again, of the importance of having a systematic assessment, but also doing a systems-based assessment. So moving out of our quick screen of like immediate life threats, A, B, C, D, and and also our sort of OBS and surveillance, like we're doing OBS because it's time to do OBS, um, and into a systems based head to toe structured assessment using like your body systems of CNS, cardiovascular, gut, integumentary, kidney, all of that. So, hopefully, I've done that justice and saved you. I've jumped on a grenade for you there, Liz yeah. Crowe. Oh,
0: thanks for taking <laughs> one for the team, Jesse. And Beck, what a great episode. So valuable. Thank you so much for joining us on Five Things. Thank you for having me. Awesome, Beck.
2: The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community, and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen, and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at... Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.